From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. Doing what others say can't be done is an extremely powerful motivator for most entrepreneurs. And for today's guest, Phaedra Buenaderas, this mindset has been integral to her story. While she was a graduate student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, she was working on a case challenge that was sponsored by IBM. And so she decided to create a game that taught business process management to non-technical people. She remembers one of her classmates telling her, games are for kids, and IBM isn't going to buy this idea. Well, it turns out that Phaedra was right and her classmate was wrong. In fact, IBM loved her idea so much that they hired her. And ever since, her career has been focused on gamification and artificial intelligence. And today, she leads IBM's Trust in AI division. However, she isn't simply promoting the benefits of AI. She's equally passionate about helping people understand the potential consequences. As she says during our conversation, if you pick an industry, AI is already disrupting it. So we need to market it in a way that makes it appealing for everyone. And we need explainability, transparency, robustness, and accountability. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Phaedra, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Oh, I am so pleased to be here, Chuck and Kyle. I wouldn't miss it. Well, this is awesome. So look, you said that your childhood dream job was to become an astronaut, but instead you go on to become an expert in gaming and artificial intelligence. Give us a little background about what led you down this path. Oh, man, I still have time to be an astronaut, right? Like, I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still holding out hope. Let's see. I, I, my sister and I grew up in a family of technophiles. Both of my parents immigrated to this country to study engineering, which is where they met. They actually met at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And uh, we were always encouraged to play around with computers. Just, I I don't know how else to put it. Everything was was really open in that way. We were welcomed to take apart computers, put them back together, and of course, play on them. And we had gravitated towards not just playing games, but but designing our own for each other and for our friends. Uh, that, that was kind of my segue into the realm of gaming. We decided, my sister and I decided after four years of working for corporate America to start our own business called womengamers.com. And we did that because we knew we played games, our friends played, our cousins played, but we'd open up most gaming magazines and look at most gaming websites and they weren't targeting us at all. So we we said, all right, that's it. We're starting a company. And we started actually the first scholarship program for women to pursue degrees in, in game design and development here in the United States. It was great fun. Uh, and then... Um, there was a big shift in the games industry, and I decided to go back to business school. It's my alma mater to get my MBA. 
And while I was there, uh, I entered into these things called case competitions, which is when a, a company will go to a business school with a real life challenge. And IBM was sponsoring one of these competitions between UNC and Duke. And the challenge was that they had business process management software, which I had no idea what the heck that was, but they said they were BPM software and we're looking for innovative ways of explaining it to non-technical people. And so when they handed each team a stack of papers about three inches thick, you know, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, okay, this is a strategy game. Tweak different business rules, seeing how it affects your broader ecosystem. You could collaborate a model around the model. You can compete against the model. I was imagining like, you know, a, kind of a, a SimCity style godlike view of an ecosystem. And so I, I pitched this to my team. And uh, the next morning we're up on stage 8 a.m. And one of the judges was the VP of strategy for IBM. And she pulled me aside and said, I want to fund this idea right now. Can you make this game for me in three months? And that was my segue into the world of, of IBM where I, I launched a practice focused specifically on serious games, using video games to do more than entertain. So, you know, I think for some people listening, they're going to say, wait, I, I don't get this. Games are games. Business is business. And I think they struggle to relate. Can you kind of do the, give us another example, maybe help people understand how you use this game thinking and apply it to business problems? As I mentioned, games can be incredibly adept at explaining complex systems, but they also offer a safe environment to in effect create dynamic best practice playbooks, right? So yes, you can learn a game to do things like, I'm gonna teach you about this new process or this new product. But the next echelon of that is, how can you do it to actually change, how can you design an environment to actually change people's behaviors, to change their thinking, where effectively it's like a sandbox where they can play to optimize and work together. But we've seen, you know, games being used to, to solve all kinds of problems and do all kinds of things uh, from, you know, like assessing what your skill set is to be using it for marketing to, you know, disaster preparedness and response, supply chain optimization. I mean, there's there's all kinds of interesting examples. In your writings, you've mentioned a project called Fold It, where I think it was thousands of people were playing this free downloadable game and it helped map the structure of an enzyme that could fight HIV and AIDS. You describe this as its collective intelligence. And just then you're going, wow, what other problems could or are we solving? And I'm just curious, is there another example out there that you know people might relate to that we're using this for? There is, in fact, I believe the same originators for Folded are now actively working on uh, or had been working on uh, COVID vaccines as well. <laughs> so, you know, that had been they've certainly taken their mission and stretched it towards uh, towards other different kinds of pandemics. But it, there is a wide spectrum of different kinds of serious games, you know, a great place to hunt is actually Games for Change. Um, this is, they have a wonderful repository, a wonderful online library of uh, games being used for, for social good, for collective change. So that, uh, that would be a good place for your listeners to check out. Oh, I'm going to personally check that out now. So um, 
I want to go back to some other things you've said. So one of them is that you said that Vladimir Putin is correct in saying that whoever leads in artificial intelligence will rule the world because that is who gets to hold the pen of history and how it is perceived by the masses. That sounds a little scary to me, but can you explain that a little bit further? Artificial intelligence is an incredibly powerful tool. It can be used to really and truly augment human intelligence in so many wonderful ways. If you think about some of our greatest aspirations as humans, right, to, uh, to combat climate change, to go to other planets, like we're going to need artificial intelligence and other technologies like it in order to, to do these kinds of things successfully. That being said, there are plenty of examples of abhorrent misuse. In fact, what happened in, in 2018 um, really filled me with such horror that when the story about Cambridge Analytica came out and, and um, the way that they, they really manipulated people on social media, on Facebook in particular, it filled me with such horror, such dismay that I I wanted to take a pause in terms of what I wanted to what I was doing, a pivot, if you will, and really focus on artificial intelligence and ethics. I, I just wanted to understand how could this happen and what can we do to prevent it? And the kinds of things that I've been learning have really been interesting. I, I started to pursue a PhD through the University College Dublin, and um, the European Union has been funding a number of different you know, programs to teach people about this, to, to really grow uh, the number of practitioners right, that, that are cognizant and not just um, the technology to thwart things like this happening again, but also understanding governance and standards and culture. So what may even concern me more is that there are so many organizations who, even though they may have the very best of intentions, the very best of intentions due to bias in their data or bias in their models, they can create significant harm, significant harm. So that's really what, what my current mission is. I've, I've done a pivot from gaming, although I've taken all the lessons I learned from that, right, to, to really think about how a narrative around this in particular, but to, to really think about holistic ways in which I can help teach organizations uh, how to mitigate these kinds of risks around, around bias in particular. Because we can't just say, all you need is this, this tech tool to ensure that your app is not going to be racist or your app is not going to be sexist. Like it, it takes more than that. It takes governance. It takes change in people, right? Diverse and inclusive teams, incorporating ethics into design thinking. So these are all things that I've, I've really, uh, I'm, I'm trying to craft right now within IBM. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things I've heard is that, you know, oftentimes AI, one of the ways we use, one of the ways we make it work is we harvest old data. And so if the old data was biased by people or humans, and you use that to try to project forward, you're essentially, it, it, you can't get rid of it, right? It, it becomes right. hard code. It, the assumption is the data tells you the answer. And so you just keep going. And I found that super neat. The question though is, so what do we actually do about it? I mean, I think it's great to, you know, we want to help people understand the problem, but what do you think, 
we, what can we do? Like, what are there actions we can take? Yes, 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 and yes. So, uh, firstly, as I mentioned, you have to understand that it's not going to be a simple thing. You can't just say, like I mentioned, I'm just going to buy this tech, this tool, and everything is going to be hunky-dory. It has to be a holistic, systemic approach by the entire organization to say, you know what, culturally, we need to make sure that we are doing this correctly, right? So as I mentioned, that ensuring that you really have diverse and inclusive teams that can ask the questions, wait a minute, in this data set, are you representing historically unprotected classes of people? You've, you've got to, to, to have groups of people who can advocate for, for, for that culturally. So inclusive uh, teams is one, incorporating ethics into design thinking, feedback loops early on, uh, teaching things like cognitive bias, uh, unconscious bias to all of the employees within the organization, but not just, not just leave it at, here's how unconscious bias can affect how you and I relate to each other. But even more importantly, how that unconscious bias can infiltrate into your products that you develop, <laughs> you know? And, and again, I, I earnestly don't believe it's because people are, are actively being malicious. I think it's, it's inadvertent. I'll give you an example. Amazon, I know there was a big press release about how they had built um, a recruiting tool with with an AI again because their intention was they recognized there was bias in their recruiting and they they wanted to address it so they thought okay let's build this AI and we're going to train the AI to recognize all the traits of our star performers but here's what happened is that because historically the majority of those people were white men from Ivy League schools, so high socioeconomic status. If your new resume said in there, I was a Girl Scout troop leader, it would get automatically a lower score. Again, blind to race, blind to gender. But that's the point is, it's like the same with redlining. Right. Uh, you know, there are neighborhoods that may have historically disadvantaged people in it. Yes, you can strip race out of that data set, but they're still in that neighborhood. So just understanding the fundamentals of hidden bias is something we, we've got to make sure organiz more organizations are educated on. Here's my last question around AI, and then I want to shift into talking a little bit more about how you specifically think about problems. But there has been conversations about AI over the last few years. I think Elon Musk might have been one of the people that basically trying to scare the heck out of people, tell them they should be afraid of AI. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, other people in the media kind of run with that. How do you get people's heads around the fact that uh, I'm assuming you don't believe we should be afraid of it, but how do you deal with that tension that's being put out there? What is going to be key with respect to the future of artificial intelligence is ensuring, you know, four different things. Right? The first is ensuring that it is fully transparent and fully explainable. Right. You've, you've got to be able to ask the AI, how did you come up with the decision? What is the level of provenance? Right. What is the level of lineage of that data? 
I need to understand as an end user and make sure that that explanation is tailored and curated for me based on my role. So that level of transparency, that level of explainability, then there's also robustness. Can that AI be hacked or be tricked in some way? Like thinking about self-driving cars, right? We're putting our lives into the hands of this artificial intelligence. So. Uh, that level of robustness is key. And the last is accountability, right? Ensuring that it, you, you can you can query an AI to, to determine if it's sticking to governance standards. And regulation is coming, Chuck. There's no doubt in my mind that regulation is coming. So these, these kinds of standards, like a, think of it, I envision it as being a good housekeeping seal of approval on various AIs that say, you know what? Uh, this passes muster with respect to these different unprotected classes of people. It has gone through the rigor. That's what I envision we're going to be seeing. That makes me feel a lot better. Not that I didn't think we would solve it, but it's the first time I've actually heard someone kind of start thinking about this is how it's going to look because it has to, right? You, this tool is coming. It is amazingly powerful. It has the ability to make not only people more productive to actually make us better at doing things, yes. but uh, you know, with all that comes this, it, there does have to be some sort of governance, right? That's that, whether people like to hear that word or not. The reality is, is that that's how you keep, uh, that's how you make it fair for everyone. So we're going to switch gears a little bit now, and I'm going to ask you a series of questions that really get into more your mindset and how you view really innovation and building teams that are trying to drive new things. So if you're going to build an innovation team, what's more important to their success? Embracing a culture of brutal honesty, even if it makes people uncomfortable, or creating an environment of psychological safety where you actually you know, ask people to adjust their conversations to avoid those awkward confrontations? I think it's an in-between. I think psychological safety is really, really important. Um, I think it's it's in fact vital, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not having difficult conversations either. You know, I, I, I think there's a there's a happy medium somewhere in there because you've got to have the growth mindset that is, you know, failure is OK and you've got to learn from it, too. Um, so I would say somewhere in between. All right. So if you're going to describe how you approach problems, would you say you are more likely to think outside the box? to build a better box, or do you set the box on fire? <laughs> well, when I've done different psych profile tests, I'm, I always end up being categorized as impact driven. So maybe it's, it's like, maybe it is setting the box on fire. It's more like, okay, how do we connect dots that haven't been connected before? That's ultimately how I, I would, I would see a, a pattern within my career. So when you're evaluating talent for a new team member that's on your team, what are the must have one or two characteristics that are really critical that you're looking for? Oh, that they're passionate. I want them to be passionate. I want them to care, to really, really care. Entrepreneurial thinking is another one. I think that's, that's important, but, um, 
I've, I've been studying, um, you know, through this PhD program, our PhD leader introduced this idea of plumb lines to us. And a plumb line is, you know, like the, the weight on the uh, end of a fishing line that pulls your line down into the water. And if you think about this line starting from the top of your head and going through your heart down to your feet, you want uh, the, the thing you're working on, the thing that you're passionate about to uh, really inspire you intellectually, to pull at your heartstrings, and that you build a root system and ecosystem around, right? That where you're nurturing it. People, people like that, who they know what their plumb line is and somehow, some way, the kind of thing that I'm doing intersects with their plumb line. That's, that's ultimately what I look for. So when you're sitting across from a candidate and you've got their resume in front of you, my guess is, is they don't describe their plumb line on their resume. How do you try to get at that? I'm just asking them, what do you care about? What do you what are you passionate about? What what keeps you up at night? What are the kinds of things you want to do? Um, and, and how did you get there? Nar having a, a good narrative story to being able to tell your story, I think is key. And then you can assess things like, you know, how do they approach problem solving when things aren't so easy? Um, you know, how do they think about the kinds of experiences that they've had, you know, do, how do they build upon things like failure? I think these are, are really important. So what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? If the advice is don't be so quick to hold all your cards to your chest. And I heard a fantastic speech that uh, president Obama had given to his interns. And he said, you know, there are three things that make an idea, a really great idea, uh, come to life. And he says, first, you've got to have a really great idea. But he says, these things are a dime a dozen. <laughs> he said, I can throw out a coin and hit a great idea. These are uh, unlimited, unlimited good ideas. He said, then you've got to have someone who can execute on a good idea. And he says, you know, there's also a good number of people who can execute on the good idea, surprisingly enough. Uh, not as many as the, the ideas themselves, but there's a good bunch of people. He says, it's the third thing that is the most scarce. And he said, the third thing is being the, finding the people, the angels who will remove the hurdles and find the funding for the people who can execute on the good idea. And that really stuck with me. And I, I find that to be so, so true. I, I find entrepreneurs oftentimes are not willing to share because they're like, oh, someone's going to steal it. Someone's going to steal it. And in fact, it should be about, you know, working with others, collaborating with others. Can you find angels? You know what I mean? Am I, yep. am I in a position to remove a hurdle for you so you can execute on your good idea? Like, I think that that is a, a lesson that I would, I would tell entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you started that first company? I, I wish I had gotten better at public speaking and communicating a narrative as early on in my life as I possibly could. 
I, I wish I had had that capability earlier on. It wasn't until later where I started to build my chops in that, that I was able to communicate visions a lot better. And, and it's kind of like a bird singing a song. You know, when you have a bird singing, you, you, when you start and getting in that flow of being able to communicate a vision well, it's like you're singing a song and it attracts other like-minded people of your tribe. And that's ultimately what you want. So you want to get there as fast as you possibly can. And other than practice, what do people need to do? Because my sense was, is for me, getting thrown in and having to force myself to be out and convince people and doing it poorly and then realizing, well, that didn't work. I should try something else and try it again and try it again. And eventually, you know, to keep going, you better start to get people to buy into your ideas or like them or understand them. And, you know, even as recently as the last few years when I went to write my book, I had to learn how to not just tell people, but how to show people things. It was a really interesting idea. And I think that's actually what the great speakers do. Yeah, they're telling you a story, but you can see it and feel it. And there's just, they have some ability to relate to us because I think they can relate to us from our perspective, not just theirs. But I, I don't know how else to get there other than practice. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I do. Uh, in addition to practice, don't assume you have to have hyper-specialized language to be good enough to communicate. And, and what I mean by that is I was presenting to a group of uh, undergraduate women in computer science and data science last night. And um, I got several questions asking me about resources around AI and ethics that they could read. And, you know, they were saying so many of them are filled with Gorpy language and it, it's just going over their heads and they, they wanted other reading material. And I said, this is an opportunity for you, you next generation, right? This is an opportunity for you. You're seeing a gap here. This material, this topic is so vastly important to society right now. We desperately need people who can communicate in layman's terms, in layman's terms. And I said, look at pop culture. Look at the show Black Mirror on Netflix. How wonderfully they were able to tell a story to help explain, like, here's what could happen to some technologies that we've been investing in 50 years out. You know, here's, here's imagine, it, the, that's one of the wonders of science fiction, right? To help us imagine, like, what, what if, what could happen? So um, I, I think that's another lesson. Like in addition to practice, don't assume you have to, uh, to don an inauthentic cloak to get your voice heard. Try to be as authentic as you can and know that there are other people like you who need to hear your message. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I am... Uh, I have a couple homework items. Specifically, I have to go to Games for Change because um, I can't wait to see what's out there. But I love the work you're doing on AI. And thank you for, I, I think, helping 
bring it down to where let's not be afraid of it. Let's get excited about it, embrace it and realize that we, we need to get involved because yes. it, it affects all of us. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate this today. This was fun. Thanks to Phaedra for joining me in today's episode and sharing some of the incredible lessons she has learned, including this piece of career advice. How do we connect the dots that haven't been connected before? That's ultimately been the pattern throughout my career. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show, and we hope that you'll tell your friends about it. We'd also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us on this journey. And let's go change the world.